Let us pray. Lord, we come before you and we pray that you would use the text that we have before us to change us. We pray that as we look at these words that we would see that you, O oh Lord, are with us all of the time. That you are the one that is going to be with us as we overcome the world. We pray that you would change our hearts, that you would change our orientation so that we'd, we would see the powerful working of a powerful God within our own lives. In Christ's name, amen. So who was this Nicodemus guy? Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. And not just, and, and the Sanhedrin could have referred to a lower form of Sanhedrin, but in this case it probably refers to the highest form of Sanhedrin. He is the one who is one of the teachers of Israel. He is probably in the highest political office that you could possibly have and be an Israelite. And this political office wasn't given to those who merely had political wisdom it was given to those who were absolute experts in religion so nicodemus was not a mere political ruler but he had more education in the old testament than just about anyone else in all of israel this guy knew the old testament backwards and forwards if anybody was going to be right with god you have expected it to be Nicodemus. And so Jesus talks to Nicodemus. And he says, you know, truly, truly, you must be born again. You must be born again if you want to know God. Well, this confuses Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is like, well, I can't just go back in my mother's womb, you know. That's kind of the first thing that came to his mind. That's not going to work. What are you talking about? Well, what Jesus was talking about was a spiritual birth, to be born of God. Nicodemus needed to have a complete change in his nature. He needed to be remade. He needed to have a radical change that was given to him by God, and only then would he be able to believe as he should? Being born again isn't some little decision that you make. It's not something that comes from your mind. It is not a simple change of opinion. It is something that God does. It is as though your life begins anew. That's why Jesus calls it being born again. Being born of God is having your entire life changed so that it's like it's beginning again. Before you're born again, you're dead to the things of God. And you're a part of what John would call the world. After you're born again, though, you are made alive so that you can know Christ, so that you can know the one who sent Christ. When John wrote his letter... He wrote it to those who have been born of God, those who are truly Christians. And he has written this letter in order to warn them about those who are not born of God. This little passage that we're looking at today, at, uh, towards the end of John's letter, beginning of, of chapter 5, is sort of a summary of everything that John has said thus far in his letter. And that's kind of nice because 
Um, if you haven't heard any of the other sermons that have been done on, on the first four chapters of John, this is going to provide you a summary of what is going on in the book of John so that when you do go back and look at John, you can read it and understand it, know what is going on. And for the rest of us, those who have been here for all of those four chapters and have heard tons and tons of sermons, this is a little bit of a review, and that's not going to hurt anything. And what is more, these verses are going to take us deeper to show us something that John has only hinted at before. Because in this passage, we are going to see that we are the ones who will overcome the world. So for those of you who have been here for quite some time, you already know that John has three tests, right? You remember that? He has three tests that he has been giving. And these are tests to know whether or not someone is a Christian. The first test is the test of theology. Does somebody believe the right things? The second test is the test of love. Does somebody really love like they should. The third we might call the test of morality. Does, does someone try to obey the Ten Commandments? Do they desire to do that? And if those three things are true, then you can bet that they're probably a Christian. Now, why is, why is John bringing this up? Those of you who have been here know all of this. You know that there are some false teachers, and we have been calling these false teachers the Gnostics. And the Gnostics have some problems, namely, they don't have the right theology, they don't love people like they should, and they don't have the right morality. And so John, in this summary of everything that he has been saying, goes through these three tests again, and so shall we. The first is the test of theology. The false teachers, you see, were not born of God, and so they did not believe in the biblical Jesus. The false teachers were not born of God, and so they didn't believe in the biblical Jesus. What do Gnostics believe about the material world? Those of you who have been here totally know this. You already know the illustration that I'm going to do. Gnostics believe that the material world is bad. And so that is material, is it not? That is bad. What about your body? Your body is material, and so it is bad. What about Jesus' body? That is material, and so somehow he didn't have a material body. If he's good, I mean, that, that wouldn't make any sense. If matter is bad, then there's no way that he could have had a material body, right? This is what the Gnostics believe, seriously. They believed that Jesus' physical body was what they called a phantasma, a phantom, or what, we, what me, we might call a hologram. They believed that Jesus did not have a physical body. Now, that's a problem, as we've talked about before, and John brings it up again, and he says you must believe that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God. And both of these phrases imply what John has been teaching before, that Jesus has a physical body, that he is completely human. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? 
you know? The Christ was considered, to, was sort of like a title. When you say Jesus Christ, a lot of people think that Christ is kind of like Jesus' last name. And that's, that's not it. Christ is more like a title. You know, like president is a title, or governor is a title, or professor is a title, or the reverend is a title, something like that. But this is, this is a description, uh, and so Christ is a description of his office. It is a title. It is what you would refer to as the person who was the Messiah. And for many, many, many years, the Jewish people had been expecting a Messiah, right? They had been expecting a Messiah that was both human and divine. The Messiah was considered to be a human deliverer who would bear the sins of his people. If you go back and you look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it is clear that the Messiah was going to be a human being. If you go back and you look at how the Messiah is referred to, he's referred to as the son of Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is going to be born as human beings are born. Furthermore, the Old Testament teaches that the Messiah was going to be divine. Who is it that brings salvation? Is it just someone who is merely a man? No, because only God's own arm can bring about salvation. Isaiah chapter 59, 15 to 20. And so the Messiah is called everlasting God. Isaiah 9, 6. Clearly, the Messiah is a human being who is also God. That is who the Jewish people were expecting when they were expecting the Christ to come among them. They were expecting someone who is human and divine. Well, the Gnostics, the Gnostics denied that Jesus was human. They believed that he didn't have a body. And therefore, they did not believe in the Christ that had been proclaimed in the Old Testament. Likewise, they would not have believed in the Son of God either. And you say, what? Because when you say Son of God, doesn't that make you immediately think about Jesus' divine nature? I mean, because it says, I'm God, right? But go back and look at how John uses that little phrase, Son of God, and you'll see that there is more to it than that. You see, this is, not the, this is John's letter that we're looking at today, but he had this whole gospel before that. And when he wrote that gospel, Son of God is the favorite uh, phrase that he would use to talk about Jesus. John just loved to talk about Jesus being the Son of God, and then he would go on and describe this Son of God. And he says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Becoming flesh implies that Jesus was born as a human being, right? He had a body. You have to have a body in order to be born. That sounds pretty human. What about uh, John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're a lamb, that implies that you have some sort of a physical nature. And so lamb is a metaphor for what Jesus was going to be. He is the one who is going to be the final sacrifice. Does a lamb, uh, 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 any sacrifice must have a physical nature because you can't shed the blood of a hologram, can you? And so, 
once again, even in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we see that this Son of God is most definitely a human being. And then there's plenty of other stuff. If you read throughout the rest of John's Gospel, you see this Son of God described as a real flesh and blood human being. He got tired. He got hungry. He ate stuff. He hung on a cross. And so if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, you must also believe that he is human and completely divine in one person. That is the Jesus that is presented to us in the Bible, and you can get that because you're born again. You can accept that because you are born again. You see, if you're born again, you're going to accept that Jesus is the one who is both God and man. You accept the biblical Jesus. Those who are in the world would not accept that. Because back then they thought that matter was evil. And so what were these Gnostic guys doing? What were they teaching in this church? They were teaching something about Jesus that the Bible didn't teach because people in their culture would like it. So often the reason that people go uh, teach things that are false is because they want to make Christianity appealing to people. They want to make people in the culture accept it without having to change their minds so much. If you were to go out today and you were to say that Jesus was completely human, do you think that would bother people? Probably not. Not a whole lot of them. What about if you were to say Jesus was God? Oh, that might be at people upset. You see, because... It has become very popular within our own culture to deny another aspect of Jesus, namely his divinity. This began with a man whose name was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher wrote a famous book called On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And in this book, he describes Jesus as being the perfect human being. He is unique in that he was always very, very conscious of God's presence. Why did he say it that way? Because a lot of people were becoming atheists. In his culture, people didn't want to believe in a Jesus who was God. They wanted to believe in a Jesus who was completely human. And so Friedrich Schleiermacher uh, emphasized Jesus' humanity so much that you wouldn't even really get the idea from reading his book that Jesus was divine also. That sort of thing has continued into today. False teachers today often present Jesus as being a great man, but not so much as God. Some of you may have heard of the Episcopal bishop, John Shelby Spong. And there are so many nods and even a giggle. Why? Because Spong said that uh, it is nonsensical to seek to understand Jesus as the incarnation of a theistic deity. And so what's he saying? Jesus is human. Don't, it's nonsensical to even consider him being divine. That's ridiculous, said Spong. What do you think John would have said if he ran into John Shelby Spong? I don't think he would have been very impressed. Seven days ago, Bishop Spong died. I don't think Jesus is going to be very impressed either. 
so what do we do with this? Here is what you need to realize. When you are proclaiming Christ, wherever it may be, in your Bible study, in a hospital, to your friends, to, to people at work, wherever it may be, just present what the Bible has to say. Don't worry about trying to accommodate the changing moods of your cultural despisers. Taking, just, just take the Bible and say what it says about Jesus, about sin, about salvation. You don't have to change Christianity to make it palatable. Changing Christianity won't even really make it more popular. It'll probably accomplish nothing more than making fake Christians. Now the test of love. The false teachers were not born of God, and so they didn't love the children of God. And so it seems as though the Gnostics, uh, the, the false teachers that were in this church that John is writing to, uh, they had a problem loving people as they should. And so John is pointing this out, saying that if you don't love people, you're not a Christian. You don't need to be listening to these false teachers. They don't love people, and so they are not children of God. And that's not surprising. False teachers are always in it for the wrong reasons. False teachers are always in it for the wrong reasons. Wherever there is a wrong teaching, you can expect for that person to have wrong motives. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3-10 to 10, mentions a couple of wrong motives that you can often find among false teachers. One is conceit. Think about that. It's sort of like saying, I like for people to know that I'm right. That could be a possible motivation for being a false teacher is conceit. Having people think, oh, look at him, he's so smart. Another reason that Paul mentions is monetary gain. And so it's possible for a false teacher to be in it for the money. Those are a couple of reasons that are wrong for being in the ministry. And the wrong reasons for being in the ministry are always at odds with the right reason for being in the ministry. And what is that? The reason that you should be in ministry is because you love people and you want them to have the very best that God has to give them. That's why you should be in the ministry. Well, what about us? We love the children of God because we are born again. Because we're born again, it feels natural to us to love the children of God. We are to be different than the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is something that we've seen time and time again in John's gospel, but there is a little twist here. Listen to how this is written. Uh, he says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Something that John hasn't said up until this point is that if you are born again, you are inherently lovable. What about the irritating people? They're lovable, for they have been born again. What about those that you disagree with? They are lovable because they have been born again. We are all part of God's family. I look out to my brothers and my sisters. And I must love you as a brother or a sister. This week at the hospital, uh, the Lord <clears throat> chose to deal with me uh, concerning this, these verses. And uh, I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm, you know, make of it as you will. 
Uh, maybe I made the right decisions. Maybe I didn't. I'm just going to tell you what I did. So there was this lady. Uh, she was in ICU. She was holding the hand of her brother. And her brother was slipping away. They had him on the tube. Uh, it was only a matter of hours.
doing what he wants you to do. You have a different orientation towards your obedience. It's more like the orientation of a little kid. The the orientation that a little kid has sometimes when you tell them something to do. There's this beautiful time when they're about three, four, five, somewhere in there, and you can, and mommy and daddy can come to them and say, can you help mommy do this? And the kid just beams. They, their face lights up and they say, and they help and they do whatever they can. They may not do it perfectly, but they try because they love their mommy and their daddy and they want to do what is pleasing to mommy and daddy. That's the sort of attitude that we should have towards the Ten Commandments. We should obey God because we love him, because we delight in him. And so when you love God, you don't look at his Ten Commandments as being a burden, but rather they are your delight. You will overcome the world. You will overcome the world. When John talks about the world, what exactly is he talking about? John is talking about people and their beliefs that are against God. And so John is saying here that you will overcome the world. You will not listen to people and beliefs that are against God, but rather you will let the world know about Jesus. In John's day, there was these false teachers that were part of the world, that had infiltrated the church. There was also all of Rome around them, and there were plenty of Gentiles that did not follow God's law in any shape, form, or fashion. Today, we still have plenty of non-Christians all around us, and we have plenty of non-Christian beliefs all around us. In fact, we're sort of inundated with it all. When you look at the movies, when you look at things uh, in the media, when you look at stuff on YouTube, when you listen to your friends, when you listen to your coworkers, you will find out very quickly that these folks, many of them, have values that are very different than the values that we should have according to the Bible. Our friends will tell us, seek whatever sorts of pleasures you desire. If you want it, then go out and get it. One of the things that our society values is pleasure. You might also hear this sort of thing. The most important thing is maximizing the profit margin. Do whatever it takes to make sure that this company is making as much money as possible. That is your task. Profit. Power is where it's at. Be on top or be trampled on. All I want is to be popular like she is popular. When you look at the stuff that our society values, you see pleasure, you see profit, you see power, you see popularity. Did you know it was actually sort of like that in John's day? Listen to this. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, pleasure, and the desires of the eyes, uh, you know, like stuff you can buy, and the pride of life, power, popularity, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The stuff that our society values today is exactly the same sort of thing that John's non-Christian surroundings valued back then. 
And it's an onslaught. It's just pumped into us all the time. You know, whoever you're talking to, whatever you're reading, whatever you're watching, it's all pushing the ideas, pleasure, profit, power, popularity. And you, our kids are inundated with it. We're inundated with it, and we're tempted to believe it. We're tempted to believe that this stuff is actually worth something. John says, we will overcome the world. Do you realize that there are a lot of people here in Huntsville and Madison that are not actually Christians? Do you know that you're surrounded by people who are of the world? Does it seem like it is even possible for the gospel to flourish here? And not only here, but even to the uttermost parts of the earth. We will overcome the world. John says it three times in this in these little short section of verses. Overcome the world, overcome the world, overcome the world. What's going on? It's inevitable. If you are born of God, if you have spiritual birth, if you are born again, then there is an inevitable result from that you will have faith. If you're born again, you will most certainly have faith in Jesus Christ the Jesus of the Bible who died for our sins. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, there is another inevitable result. You will overcome the world. Being born of God leads to faith. Faith leads to overcoming. Got it? Simple, according to John. If the first one happens, the other two will inevitably follow. Why is this? It's because our overcoming is related to Jesus' overcoming. Imagine this in your mind. Imagine that there is a line of peasants. They're not dressed so well. They're kind of dirty. There's a couple of them that have some old rusty swords, but the rest of them just have farming weapons, maybe an axe or something. And these peasants are lined up. And on the other side, there's another force that has emerged. And this other force are knights on horseback. And these knights on horseback have full, shiny, shiny plate armor. And these knights on horseback have gleaming swords that shine in the sun and shields. And there's not just one line of them like there is with the peasants. There's an Another line behind that, and another behind that, and another, and another, and another, and another. Who's going to win that battle? At first glance, you would say, well, the peasants certainly don't have a chance. Any knight on horseback could take out a whole bunch of peasants. There's no way that they could possibly make it. How on earth are they going to overcome? How are they going to have victory? But then all of a sudden, you hear a... And the ground shakes just a little bit. And someone walks up behind these peasants, who is a knight, who is in full plate armor, who has a flaming sword, and who is 300 feet tall. Now who do you think is going to win? My money is on the peasants. I think that they are going to overcome. They are going to have victory. Joel Beakey says, we aren't victors because we are great warriors, but because we belong to the one who has triumphed. 
Jesus has already won the battle. He already defeated Satan at the cross. Satan fell like lightning from heaven. Jesus has already won. The rest is just details. He is the one that ensures that our faith will result in overcoming. You are surrounded by the world. In the midst of that, keep your eyes on Jesus. Know that your faith in him will result in your victory. This will enable you to overcome every temptation. This will enable you to make Christ known where he is not previously known. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you for the new birth. We thank you that you have changed our hearts. We thank you that we are believe, that we believe in you. We thank you that we have real faith in you. We look towards you and we know that there is our Savior that hung on a cross. And we thank you that through this faith, you have ensured that we will overcome. We thank you that you have already granted us the victory. In Christ's name. Amen.